I got beach. I got back from Orange Beach, Alabama, on Friday. Uh, concluded the camp on Thursday. That night after worship, we had come to the end of the service, and this kid comes up to me, and, and she said, "Pastor Chad, will you take a picture of us for Be Real?" I was a little confused. I thought I'd been real all week. I also thought that she had said with us, but then she handed me the phone here. I thought, well, I guess I'm not in this one. I did not really know how this app worked. Anyone familiar with this app? Okay. Uh, It's odd. And I'm trying to figure out this app, and I've got that dad figuring out stuff face on. Anybody feel that? You know what that looks like at your house. And while I'm staring at her phone, I'm wondering what I'm supposed to do. To make matters worse, she'd handed me an Android. She might as well have handed me a Pelican and said, take a picture with this, like with it, like right here. Uh, I took the picture, and I'm holding the picture up, and out of the blue... There was a picture of that church group right there. But in the corner was my dad face. Just, and I said, hey, I need to take another one of those where I'm smiling. It was one of those moments where I thought, these people, what has happened to us as a society where you want to have a husky middle-aged man in the corner of your photo to look at something and see your reflection in it. What if we saw the Bible like that? We don't. How weird would it be that whenever we read the Bible, a physical mirror popped up? Our hearts struggle with that. How often when we read through the scriptures, do we see the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph... And whenever they are at fault, as we read the story, we don't see ourselves in it. We don't see that what's taking place right there in front of us is intended to serve as a mirror. What if every time that I stood on stage, the front of this room transformed like Optimus Prime, and while I talked, your reflection was right there, and my reflection was right here? What if when we looked at the Scriptures, we saw ourselves? When we look at them in that way, not just as a book that we read or a message that we interact with or even songs that we sing, what we should come to the realization of when we see our reflection in it is that there is really only one hope and that is this, God is our only hope. So if we have a central idea or a big idea or a bottom line for today's message, that's it. God is our only hope. Last week... Greg shared with us from the Ten Commandments and between the Ten Commandments and today's passage which is in Exodus chapter 32 a few things have been moving and I don't want us to miss the passage so let me give you say a quick overview of what takes place in those chapters. Those chapters tell us how to treat people. They tell the nation of Israel how to treat people and even by proxy for us in a sense what it means for us to treat people. They talk to us about justice and fairness and they even share for us the penalties of wrongdoing. 
they also outline very specific instructions for the construction of what's called the tabernacle, the place where the people of Israel would meet with God, the holy sanctuary for worship, and what the Ark of the Covenant, how it's supposed to be housed. Overall, these chapters serve to establish and set in place a moral and a legal framework for the, for the Jewish people and highlight the importance of being obedient to God and all of the commands that He's given and how that's good for them. From where, from where Greg was last week in chapter 20, we still have Moses on the mountain and he has been there for weeks. The people of Israel are not desert people. They are wandering in the desert. And as they wander in the desert, they're wondering what they're supposed to do next. What's supposed to take place for us? Because after all, only one person in their, among them had ever really lived in the desert. It was Moses and he has abandoned them in their hearts. Exodus 32. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off your gold rings that are on the ears of your wives your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement, there will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early in the next morning, they, early the next morning, they arose, uh, offered burnt offerings, they presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to party. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt. They've acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I've seen these people. They are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then... I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? You brought up out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a strong hand. Why should the Egyptians say, he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember, your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, you swore to them by yourself, and I declared I will make your offsprings as the stars of the sky and you will give your offspring all this land that I have promised you and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster that he, had, that he said he would bring on his people. 
God's people have always been and, are, and always will be God's forgiven and restored people. You and I live in hope and joy because God has made a new command, a new covenant based on God's mercy through the work of Jesus. God has put a mediator between us and himself, between his holy self and our rebellious hearts. Because every one of us are rebellious. Our hearts are rebellious. Even though for many of us who get together at 1027 Dixie Drive on a Sunday morning, that's your address if you're watching from home, that's our address. If you get together with us, you may just be rebellious in the most socially acceptable of ways in conservative Texas Christian culture scenarios. We still have rebellious hearts and we need to be reminded that the God of the Bible, he, he sees our rebellion and he calls us from it and calls us to something else. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, when they noticed this, they come around Aaron. Now, Aaron gets a pretty rough rap that he deserves in this passage, but on top of the rough rap that he gets, there is also a, a tone almost... Uh, there is something taking place in the text that should help us to see this was not necessarily Aaron's idea. He's just not really good at dealing with peer pressure. They gang up around him and they begin to, you do something for us. The, the tone of the text communicates to us that they almost said to, said to Aaron, we believe that your brother Moses, he's been eaten by the mountain. They've been watching this mountain. They've been standing from afar. And they've been noticing. They know that Moses is there somewhere between where they are and where Moses is, Joshua is. All that they know is some weird stuff is happening on the mountain and they don't know what they're supposed to do or why they're supposed to do it. They are in one of those spots. So the moment that they come to Aaron, who's pretty terrible with peer pressure, he has a plan. Now, when they, he's dealing with the rebellious hearts of these people, his plan is not what Moses' plan was because whenever we see Moses dealing with the people, he would look to the Lord. Whenever you read through the book of Exodus, he looks to the Lord over and over and over. I look to the Lord. But Aaron, in the face of peer pressure and dealing with the rebellion of his people, when he sees them, he just looks at them. He looks to them and says, we'll, we'll figure this out. He pulls out a melting pot. Take off your gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. And bring them to me. So all the people took off their gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. Now, the, this gold jewelry, it's got a little bit of a history. When the people of Israel had left Egypt, God told they were having jewelry thrown at them, provision thrown at them by the Egyptians as the Egyptians were saying, just get out. Pharaoh has gotten us into a mess with your God. Here, take, take, take. The Bible used the word plunder there. They, they plundered Egypt, but Egypt was willingly plundered. Take it all. They have this jewelry in a sense to be provided for, but also to be reminded that God got them through. Every time you look at the earring that's in your hand or on the ear of your wife or child or whomever, you be reminded that before you didn't have that jewelry. You served someone that was wearing that. I got you through. I carried you through from one side to the other. The 
Professor Scott McKnight says this. I'll have it on the screen. They exchanged the God whose, li whose living voice they had heard from heaven for the lifeless statue of an animal incapable of speech of any kind. A thing forged from rings pulled from the very ears that had heard God's voice. The earrings that they were wearing were in ears that had literally heard from God. For he took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. What a world! This is what cares for you. This is what delivers for you. This is what provides for you. How inconsistent are we if we don't see our reflection in this passage? How often when we read through a passage like this, we forget the day when we were on the front side of a job that we were praying for. God, could you just please, please, please give me that job because that's the job that I want and I really think that would be great. But the moment that we get it and we begin to look into our bank accounts or look into our, our savings accounts, we begin to think, man, I did that. I, I knocked that out. Look how hard I worked. I take care of my kids. What you want, a cookie? We are looking at ourselves and giving ourselves credit for what only God has done. He took the gold from them, fashioned it, engraved it into the image of a calf. These are your gods. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and he made an announcement. I, I do not feel like Aaron's the best leader, but here we are constructing stuff. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. So, so help me out, friends. If your Bible has the word Lord in verse 5, capitalized, just raise your hand so I know that you're with me. Okay? Great. When that takes place in Scripture, it is a declaration of the name of God. It's, it's a reference to, to Yahweh. This is the notion of this self-sufficient God of Israel who is also the maker of the heavens and the earth. That's this God. We're going to have a festival to the Lord. Early the next morning they arose, they offered burnt offerings, they presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink. And they got up to party. Now, the word party there is not the five-year-old little Caesar's party that you are inevitably going to throw for your child the next time a birthday rolls around. This is not inflatables. This is a, a perverse party. This is a party that is unlike anything that Yahweh would approve of. The last couple of weeks, I, I had Greg Baker preach last week. A couple of weeks ago, jo Josh Dawes preached. And they did just a fantastic job. Can you let them know they did a fantastic job? Oh, listen to that. Woo. If you're ever wondering if we're getting high church around here, just remember, we woo in this place sometimes. What if when they had, I mean, they get up and they just preach. I really do think they're the best two sermons that guys have ever preached. That's why I'm not letting them preach anymore. It's getting better and better. It's like when your kids get faster than you. I think we're done. Imagine that they come to the conclusion of those fantastic sermons. 
Josh on week one when he realizes we've taken a few steps. Uh, when it's time for communion, which we take every week because we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, he rolls out Oreos and milk. If you're thinking, man, my youth group used to do that. Well, that was dumb. They shouldn't have done that. Don't insult my youth group. I'm not. I'm insulting sin. The next week, when Greg gets up to preach and we move toward communion, it turns into a just a full-blown party. Revelry all around. It's called syncretism. We're going to celebrate the Lord, but we're going to indulge in revelry. There's a sexual sense to it, according to Paul. We're going to worship God in a godless way. But the Bible is a mirror. We see this all the time. We're going to worship God in a godless way. When we slap Bible verses on billboards and banners that are contradictory to the truths of Jesus. We, when we have God save signs at government coups. This is about God. No, it's not. It's about you. And it's about me. Because the Bible is, if anything, a mirror. Early the next morning they arose. They offered burnt offerings. They presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat, drink. Indulge in a revelry. To have a party. One of my favorite pastors says, Bad theology and bad worship lead to bad behavior. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is so... <laughs> I tune in on live stream and I see what's taking place at the Little Caesars Oreo party. That seems bad. Moses is on the mountain and God says to him, Hey, go down there at once. For you pe for the people, your people. Now he's been calling them his people. For your people. Your. This is, this is when a spouse says to her husband or, or to his wife, You go deal with your kids. Go down at once for your people you brought up from the land corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. This is unfaithfulness during the honeymoon. That's what's happening in this text. I just got them out. And they're melting stuff. Well, where, where do they get the cow idea from? The Egyptians worshipped a cow called Apis. That's not pronounced correctly, but you know they don't do that. That's why Moses 
said to Pharaoh, hey, we've got to get out of here and sacrifice because our sacrifices would be an abomination to you. So it might be about that. But it also might be about where they're going. Because the Canaanites, that land they're headed to, they worship Baal, who looks like a bull. God looks at this and says, hey, neither where you came from or, or where you're going have anything to do with me. So quit tying me into it. Washing my hands. I'm done with this. Jared and I talked today. Not only do you have the where I'm coming from or where I'm going of the passage, you also have this. Between those things, God's not stopped doing stuff for them. He got them up out of Egypt and he has been leading them with a pillar of fire. A cloud during the day. A cloud to keep things cool. And fire at night to keep them warm. So before you can ever get back to Apis, you've got to remember I was with you right there. And on top of that, they're not in Canaan, Canaan yet, but between where they are in Canaan, they can see something miraculous is happening on a mountain. God's provision is all around them. But we get bound in the weirdest stuff. God says in verse 8, they have bowed down to it, they have sacrificed to it, they have said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord also said to Moses, I've seen these people. They are stiff-necked people. Two years ago, there was a decision made in my home to get a dog. I was part of that decision, I think. If you've not met Gus, he's a runner. Loves birds. Also loves my children. Grateful for that. He likes me. I take him to the dog park regularly. That's where he can really run. It's hard to run over there in the burbs. And when I get him to the dog park, that's all he does is sprint. I take him one Saturday morning, I think it was February, and while we are at the dog park, I go in. If you don't know about this dog park in Lake Jackson, I would like to thank BASF for its provi the provision of it. There's gate one, you walk through, that's where you take the harness off, you shut the gate behind you, you go into gate two. There's a little corral there for you to do the work, and then you get him back into the little corral to, to harness him back up. He's in there, and he's just bird running, back and forth. Another person shows up with his dog. It's a boxer. And he, was, he, had, he had a chip on his shoulder. When the boxer comes in, sees Gus. Gus is just doing Gus's stuff, running back and forth. Gus is playing around. Gus is being a good dog, obedient dog, kind dog. This dog, this boxer, begins to snarl at Gus because the owner of the boxer had played friendly with Gus. That dog wasn't about it, so he's going to go have a fight with Gus. And Gus is right there, and Gus does not realize that he is not a fight dog. He is a flight dog. In every way, shape, and form. And I thought, man, I don't want blood in my 2008 Honda. I've got to get him out of here. So I began to move him back toward the corral. But the thing is, when I opened gate one, the gate two of the corral, the person who owned the boxer had left that gate open. 
Now remember, Gus is a runner, and when he sees the open gate, he looks up and sees birds and takes off to run behind the SPCA, and he is sprinting as fast as he can. If you do not know this, I've shared before, Gus runs, that breed of dog runs around 43 miles an hour maximum speed. Let me make a list of people who do not run 43 miles an hour. Me. I'm done. I was wearing hokas that day, so I took off sprinting across the park. I sat down, took a break, ordered Uber Eats from Cane's, and then I went to run after him again. <laughs> He's behind the SPCA. If you don't know what the SPCA is, that is where people take their uh, pit bull mix. And, and while they, all of these dogs are just snarling at Gus, ready to devour Gus, and there's just this red blur running in brush behind the SPCA. And I'm calling him by name. And he wants to have nothing to do with that because much to my chagrin, my children claim they were Caesar Milan, but they did not train that dog. He does not know his name. I don't think he knows my name. He just knows what a bird is. And he's running behind the SPCA. Shepherd FaceTimes me and says, Hey, bruh. We are at the bruh stage of this parent deal. I said, get over here now. <laughs> My knees were covered in, in, in being in, in mud and being switched and in the thickets. Those dogs are still trying to kill Gus through the fence. He ran for 48 minutes. <laughs> Shepard gets over there. He takes off his sneakers. I was mad and proud at the same time. When he took them off, he found a ball. Holds the ball up, tosses it. Gus slows down, saliva dripping from his mouth, and sits on top of the ball. I am firmly convinced if it were not for that ball, the dog would still be running. I would still be running too. I would weigh 144 pounds. <laughs> Moses looks at these people. And they have stiff neck. They don't listen. That dumb. They call things God that are not God. These people are us. Verse 10. Leave me alone. So that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I'll make you, that's singular by the way, into a great nation. All that I'm going to do in Israel, I will do in you. We get some shadows and echoes of, of, the, of, the, book of or the echoes of the book of Genesis here. Genesis 6 and 11 and 12... God's dealing with the people who are sinful and wicked. He says that they are corrupt, just like we see in verse 7, that the people of Israel are corrupt. Verse 10, he says he's going to destroy them. In Genesis 6-7, as a matter of fact, we see that God does destroy the whole world with the exception of this one righteous person who had favor with the Lord. His name was Noah. And right here we see Moses in 12-17 through 17 who is, has favor with the Lord. Moses looked at these people and he saw they are running, stiff-necked, not listening to the one who has protected them and provided for them. And he notices that this is pretty much a bad deal because this God seems to be serious. 
in all of my burning bush encounters and all of my mountaintop encounters he's a pretty serious fella Moses sought the Lord's favor. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and strong hand, mighty hand, outstretched arm? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them up out of the evil to, with evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger and relent. Relent. Don't do it. Just don't. Please don't do it. Concerning this disaster plan for your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. This has been the plan, God. You're going to deliver these people. And you knew they were dum-dums. You swore to them by yourself and you declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised and they will inherit it forever. And then we get this weird verse in 14. So the Lord relented. If you're KJV from back in the day, it reads, Repented. What's that mean? God repents? Relents a better word, but we still have to do a little bit of work. One theologian says this, it's God's act, this is God's activity explained in the most human terms. This is for us to understand. He's embarked on a different course of action based on a new factor, but he knew the factor. We have this unique relationship between Moses and God and God and Moses and that is part of the equation here. Priests like Moses speak to God on behalf of the people and the people on behalf of God. Moses is prophet priest. So the Lord's going to offer forgiveness or, or hope for these people. He's going to hold these people but there has to be a turn for them. Moses descends from Mount Sinai and he's got these two tablets of the testimony inscribed by the hand of God. As he approaches camp, he witnesses the Israelites. They are still dancing around that cow. Angry and God's angry. In response, Moses throws the tablets down. He destroys the calf. He confronts Aaron. That's got to be a weird conversation. About his role in the incident and calls upon the faithful Levites to... To judge the idolaters. But it doesn't just call on the Levites. Let's notice what he does here. 21, before we do, let's look at this conversation with Aaron because it's fantastic. Then Moses asked Aaron, What did these people do to you that you, that you have led them into such a grave sin? 22, Don't be enraged, my Lord. You yourself know the people are intent on e evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us because this man Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I, I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. He's still taking a little bit of responsibility. And they gave it to me. And when I threw it in the fire, out jumped a cow. <laughs> How many of you have children? How many of your children can lie better than that? <laughs> this is the sidekick that God gave Moses. D.A. Carson says, Aaron is revealed as a spineless wimp, unable or unwilling to impose any discipline. 25, Moses sees the people. They're out of control. For Aaron had, had, to, had let them get out of control making them a laughingstock to their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp entrance and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. 
This, this passage is such... People love to argue about this. Where's the mercy of God? That's not the question to ask. God already knew none of them were for him. They've been dancing around a couch. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. God's mercy is bigger than we realize. But just the Levites gathered around him. And all the people who did not come on yet another offer from God of his mercy were slaughtered. Over and over, God offers opportunity for people to turn to Him. As long as you have today. There's story after story in this room, and I hope this can be an encouragement for us. For those frustrating children or those frustrating neighbors or those impetuous parents that we are praying and praying and praying would turn to God as long as they have today. There's opportunity to turn to the Lord. Verse 30, the following day Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. And there's a massive word there. Perhaps. I'll be able to atone for the sin. Moses learned what atonement was. Approximately 11 minutes ago. And the Bible the, in those chapters, God explains to them what needs to happen for the people of Israel to see atonement. There are things that were necessary. While on the mountain, God had told him what was necessary for this. There was no atonement cover for the ark. Moses had to have that. You have to have that for atonement. There's no altar for burnt offerings. There are, there's no ordained priesthood. Closest thing is Aaron, and he is a chariot wreck. There's nothing. He says, God, if you would only forgive their sin, if not, just erase me. The story of God... He has told Moses, I'll start everything through you. And Moses, don't leave that stuff. You've been doing all of this work. I don't want to be that guy. I can't be that guy. 
It reminds me a little bit of when Paul says, For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my countrymen, by physical descent. Moses has the best laid plans of mice and men. But here's the thing. When God looks at Moses, Moses doesn't have what it takes. Literally, physically, spiritually. The title of this sermon is Mediator-ish. Because that's what he's attempting to be in the passage. But there's a better mediator. Jared reminded me of Luke 9. Moses says, perhaps, and Jesus says, when the day, it says about Jesus, when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint. He was on his way. The people have built a graven image. You should never build a graven image. They've already broken like four of the commands they've not even seen yet, but they should know better. The word for idol that we use over and over, it's negative. No one's like, man, that, idol, idolatry is awesome. It's the same word used for image in the book of Colossians or, or the word icon. And we are told that Jesus is the icon. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is where we meet with God. We don't meet with God apart from Jesus. We don't have a mediator if not for Jesus. All of the stuff that Moses had to gather around, Jesus doesn't need that. Jesus is all of that. Jesus is how we are made at one with God. So when we begin to consider what worship should look like, we begin to consider what Jesus told us. We should, in view of God's mercy, to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. We respond, in, we respond to Him. Because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the hope. We meet with God in Jesus. And we celebrate that every Sunday. When we, as a body of believers, take of the table for believing people, we are reminded that our hearts are rebellious against God. But Jesus has made a way so that we could be right with Him. That my heart wants to run towards lesser things and celebrate fallen things. And Jesus holds me close and clings to me that Jesus is for me. So as we take communion today, would we be reminded that Jesus has not stopped being for us? Because here's the thing. If we do not continue to cling to Jesus, our hearts will abuse what God intends to use in our lives. Run to Him. Take the table. If you're not a believer in this space, I'm so glad you're here. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful you will be part of our worship gathering today. Don't come to this table and get this just don't. Because this is something that we are saying as a body of believers we celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus because he is the mediator for us. If you never place your faith in Christ and you would like to do that this morning, I'm in the back right hand corner of the room. That's where I'm at usually. Come chat with me. I would love to share with you in full what it means for Jesus who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation to want to know you to the point that he would die so you could be reconciled to God. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have given us a chance this morning to look into your word and to see there is such good value in it. Lord, would you, be, would you help us today as a body 
to celebrate your broken body, to celebrate your shed blood, to help us to know that you, you're still for us, God. You're for us. Lord, thank you for loving us. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. If you need me, I'm in the back right-hand corner.